What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Antler Up podcast. And on today's episode, Dimitri and I are joined by Greg Farrell of First Light. And Greg is a repeat guest, and he is a whitetail fanatic and is the whitetail product line manager for First Light. And in this episode, Greg shares some great information regarding how to improve deer habitat to get more out of your hunts, hunting ridges and points, early season tactics, picking the right time to get in the tree, and some out-of-state information as well. And a whole whole lot more so greg thanks for coming on buddy sharing some of your your wisdom and uh hope you guys like this one as much as we uh did recording and i just want to say again a big thank you to all of you for your continued support especially thank you to our amazing partners be sure to check them out over on our website at antlerupoutdoors.com and i want to say this real quick it has been a year now that antler up has been uh kind of a brand and uh, we are just shy of a year it will be uh, a year come in January for the podcast uh, so what I want to do is uh, we're going to be wa- watch our, our Instagram we're going to do some type of giveaway uh, with one of our awesome partners with Onyx uh, so right now I mean just even talking about Onyx this has been picked out some new property over here near my house and uh, been using that, looking at that the last couple of days and actually had a chance to go walk it today. Really excited for what that has to offer. And using the Onyx app has been a helpful tool for me to use right now uh, regarding that property specifically because it's brand new to me. So I'm kind of marking some waypoints, seeing where I'm gonna put some trail cameras and opening days less than three weeks here in Pennsylvania. So uh, check out Onyx at onyxmaps.com and download the number one hunting app and for 30 bucks i bet you it's the one of the the least expensive things you'll be using a heck of a lot during the the season and make sure you head on over to firstlight.com to check out their early season whitetail kit and in this kit you will see the klamath hoodie and this hoodie is incredibly uh versatile mid-layer for the tree stand hunt and also too for the backcountry uh, expeditions i know dimitri wore this out in utah it has that grid fleece construction providing an exceptional warmth to weight ratio uh reducing that wind chill and that's what i noticed it in the tree stand last year and i wore it a ton and i love the comfort the stretch material that it's uh, in it as well so it's honestly a must piece for any whitetail hunter so check it out over at firstlight.com. I want to talk about, too, the broadheads that we're using. Um, and our, our mechanicals that we're rocking are the Sever 2.0 broadheads. Brand new design. It has a more of swept back blade angle for, for more uh, uh, penetration, 15% more actually to be exact than the 2.1, which we had a lot of su- success with. So head on over to our website, antlerupoutdoors.com, or check, out, check them out over at severbroadheads.com. And, uh, man, they are the, the, arrow, the broadheads that are in our quiver, so check them out. And also want to thank our partners over at America's Best Bowstrings. Between Mike, Dimitri, and I, we all run a Platinum Series set of strings. We are so impressed with them. The durability, the quality, the customize uh, your strings is, is phenomenal. And, uh, man, they're awesome people. And that's something, too, with the previous brands I talked about. Great people behind them. Love working who we work with. So definitely check them out over on our website. So, again, without further ado, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I want to just say, antler up. Well, dude, what have you been up to as far as getting ready for the whitetail season? 
It's been crazy. You know, um, this is like the time of year that I don't want to say it sneaks up on me cause I'm always ready for it, but you kind of, you know, you slowly get into it. It's like, okay, shed hunting season's over. And then we transition into figuring out what we're doing for habitat improvement and food plots. And then you start working on some of that stuff. And then all of a sudden you look up and it's August and it's like, okay, well I got a couple weeks still we hit the ground running here. Um, and it's exciting times. Yeah. I've been spending a ton of time, um, on one of the properties that I hunt, we've been doing a lot of habitat improvement. Um, we actually had a uh, Jeff Sturgis, our buddy Jeff come in and do a consult on that property with us. Um, which is awesome. Cause it's a property that, you know, I spent quite a bit of time on, um, my buddy and his family actually have owned it for quite a while. So, um, it's one of those things where, you know, you know, it so well and you spent so much time on it. Um, but it's great to get a fresh set of eyes in there. Um, that kind of comes from a new neutral position, um, and give you some insight on what you could potentially do to improve it, make it better. So that's been a big part of my summer work, um, is working on that place. Uh, we got some water holes in cleared a ton of acreage, um, to put a couple new food plots in, um, getting stands ready, things like that there. Um, but then also, um, I'm kind of hitting the road a little more than I ever have for whitetails, um, this fall, I'll be going to Kentucky in September, um, which I'm really excited about for the opener, try and catch up with a velvet buck there. Um, and then also I drew a Kansas tag this year. So, nice. um, been doing a lot of e-scouting as well on those places, obviously being out of state. So it's been busy. That's awesome, man. That's yeah. great to hear. Now, can you talk a little bit? I know for us, we hunt mostly public land so consulting isn't really something that we can get into but yeah. for your property can you maybe someone that has private land go over maybe some things that he gave you some ideas and how your property set up for someone listening that has private land can kind of get some ideas how to improve their whitetail habitat yeah for sure um you know and i, I think that was you know that's a great question because that was one of the coolest things for me um, in that whole process. Um, I don't have, I don't own a bunch of, you know, my own private ground, um, you know, and the stuff that I've had access to, whether it's through leases or, you know, kind of work to hunt situations, um, or things of the like, um, I haven't had a ton of ability to do improvement. So it's kind of just, you know, make the best with what you have. Um, so this was the first time that I've really been able to, um, you know, dig into manipulating a property specifically for, uh, whitetail hunting. Um, you know, and we spent an eight hour day there with Jeff and we've probably spent, man, I can't even tell you how many hours actually implementing the improvements that, um, he suggested and put forth. But I think the biggest thing, um, you know, the biggest takeaways and the things we spent the most time on was really looking at, you know, a, what was already there that was good. So, you know, with, with a private property, one of the things, well, in public too, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think is the most important is looking at how you access a property, you know, the private property, typically you're accessing it through a driveway, right. Um, through public, you're typically looking at, you know, what are your entry or exit routes based off of how you get there. Um, and then, you know, kind of working back from there. So once you've determined your access, it's, also determining it's like, okay, where are deer bedding? Um, and are they bedding in a place where you want them to bed? And that's impacted by a number of things, right? Like the cover and the terrain, but also the food sources. So it's kind of painting this big picture of, 
um, within your own property, A, how are you going to access it? B, how does that access impact where the deer are bedding? You know, and then see what other things can you do to impact where those deer are betting if they're not betting where you want them to. Um, you know, so if you're, if they're betting close to your access, they're betting close to your entry or exits. It's what can you do to improve the habitat, maybe through TSI timber stand improvement or, you know, certain planting of, you know, switchgrass or, you know, removing certain species, um, to improve betting where you want it. Um, and then allowing that to really play out for how you hunt your property. So, um, the one that we were working on, it's not a giant parcel, it's 130 acres. So it's not big enough that we're, we're not necessarily keeping deer there all day. Right. right. So then we also have to look at, um, where those deer are going, um, if they're not on the property and how we can get those deer to come onto the property during the daylight hours so we can hunt them. So I know it's kind of a mile high overview and maybe there's not a ton of specifics there. There's a lot of specifics in all those details, but I think the biggest thing is, you know, again, just kind of analyzing access and bedding. And then with those two things in mind, you know, what can you do, whether it's, you know, as small as changing some of that, um, or as big as clearing some of that to put in additional food sources or water holes to get the deer to move where you want them to, um, instead of maybe where they would naturally move. Yeah. I think cause Demetri even talk about where the bedding area that we found, like even talk to Greg about that, where we hung that camera just the other day of, you know, what was your, thought press process of getting down to that area. But, uh, so basically that the, what we are looking at is an Oak flat Ridge, uh, little higher elevation. And what happens is there's two valleys that wraps around and makes kind of a bull. And we've talked to, about this previously on our podcast is what I'm looking for is those, uh, ridges that come to a point and a lot of times those big bucks like the bedge on, on those uh about three quarters of the way up that way they have an escape route whether going down over the hill or up um into the thicker cover based on you know where the predator or, or the person may be uh so we kind of dove deep into that bedding area a little bit the other night and we were trying to hang a, actually a, a licking vine to put a uh trail camera on and as we as soon as we got into that bedding area we we saw a nice buck and you know just looking where they're going to kind of stage coming out of that bedding area where we can slip in right on the edge maybe be a little more aggressive early on and and right there where we were going to put the trail camera there was a nice shooter buck yeah that's fun that's fun finding those spots it's interesting i mean you know that's that's always been kind of my school of thought you know, when, when hunting areas that have those ridges that come to points and this property that we're working on, um, actually plays a lot out very similar to that. And one of the main things that we're trying to do there is actually get just because of the way the property lays out where our access is and where we want to hunt these deer, we're actually trying to move those bucks down, um, the ridge a bit. So instead of having them bed about three quarters of the way up, we're trying to get them to bed about a quarter, <clears throat> excuse me, a quarter to half the way up. Um, and one of the ways we're doing that is actually improving the habitat for doe bedding closer to the food source. Cause, um, typically that buck bedding is going to be largely impacted by where the does bed. So, um, if we can get those does to move a little closer to our targeted food source, we can get those bucks to move down a little bit. And what that's going to allow us to do in this property is, um, you know, hopefully see them, uh, moving in the daylight hours. Cause they're going to be in a spot where we can hunt them earlier 
versus getting there, you know, at, too late um, in the evenings or getting out of there too early in the mornings. Yeah. And that's something too, like for, uh, like get, going off of back to what Dimitri said about the licking vine, uh, that's something too that we got from Jeff. I know he does a lot of videos, uh, puts out great content regarding that. And I know that was one of his big thing about like kind of locating the deer and locating the bucks is trying to find that specific, uh, you know, shooter buck. Yeah, hundred percent. We did a bunch of that. Um, I, I mean, we did a bunch of that on that property, but a few of the other places that I'm targeting for this fall too, I've been doing that and running cameras over them and, it's, it's amazing how uh, successful that can be in terms of not only taking inventory of what's there, um, but also to that point, you know, to your point, figuring out, um, you know, what that actual target buck is and narrowing in on not only where he's betting, but his travel corridors as well. That's awesome. Now, do you have anything uh, as far as putting out those trail cameras of uh, what some of that strategy has played so far for you? Um, you know, the, the biggest thing, I think this is everybody's challenge, right? But the biggest thing for me and always has been is I put a camera on, I want to know what's on it <laughs> and it's staying out of there. Right. And it's having the patience to do that. And, you know, while I've got better at that, um, you know, I guess the older I get or the longer I do it, the I've actually moved into using run and sell cams this year, which I know you guys have kind of been doing as well. And for me, that has been, I don't know. It's been a game changer in terms of um, kind of settling myself down and knowing what's on there. But, man, it is distracting when you're getting these cell cam pictures and knowing what's going on. It's like just counting down the days. Can't wait. So it's a blessing and a curse, but that's been my biggest strategy is kind of transitioning over all the cameras I can to, um, the cell cameras, um, just to keep the pressure down as much, especially now, you know, earlier in the season when you're doing work, you know, I think it's a little less important. You get out there and um, you're, you're doing the work anyways. So you're disturbing your property, whether it's private or public, but, you know, now as we're getting into that, you know, four, five, six, eight weeks before the season, I try and really stay out of there um, as much as I can. So the cell cameras have really, really helped that way. Yeah, I know too. I, Dimitri and I, we've talked about it before, either with friends or on the podcast. Like when I go home in Northeast PA to hunt, uh, I mean, we let those suckers sit all year round and we're just constantly, we'll just change the batteries. We might move them uh, yeah. and, and do all that type of stuff. But when we are here on public land in central Pennsylvania, we'll throw them out kind of like now, uh, let them soak for about two weeks uh, just to kind of get an inventory and maybe see a little bit. Uh, and if we see like, shooter box or just opportunities, we might move it again, just to kind of see where they are coming from. What's the the path that they're taking and raise that up. So then that way we could kind of get a little bit more to that puzzle, but then we mm -hmm. actually pull them just because man, it, it, the theft around here is crazy as, as, as far as like leaving cameras go on public land. And, um, and like, that's the difficult thing too, is just because we'll see friends check them like weekly. And I'm like, Oh, that's yeah. like, you know, cause I was like you a couple of years ago, like how you were saying, like you, you have that, yeah. that, that urge to just keep checking and uh, you don't realize just how much damage that could really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, especially for this time of year, that's my strategy as well. It's the, the reason I'm running cameras right now, um, and again, it has a little bit to do with where I hunt when the season opens up. But, um, you know, with the season opening middle of September in Wisconsin, the reason I'm running cameras right now is I'm trying to figure out what's my opening weekend plan. Right. A lot of times we can still catch bucks on those summer patterns for at least a week, sometimes two, depending on how the weather plays out. So I'm really trying to hone in on what is my, do a, do I have a target and B what is my target for that first week of season? 
Um, and then to your point, you know, most of those cameras end up getting moved. Um, and if it's on private, right, they end right. up getting moved, um, to transition to setting up for a fall plan or excuse me, a later fall plan. Or if they're on public, a lot of times I'm pulling them, um, and then kind of transitioning into, uh, you know, putting them back out once I'm ramping up for like a pre-rut and rut situation on those public spots. That's good because I want, I want you to actually bring up your, your Kentucky hunt, how you're preparing for that, because what changes from like an opening day weekend there being that it's early September compared to like what your normal opening day weekend in Wisconsin looks like? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say those are actually pretty similar because we do open, you know, fairly early here in Wisconsin, but you know, there with it being the beginning of September, um, we're really, really focusing on those bucks are still on feeding patterns, right? So we're trying to hone, we won't even hunt mornings, um, just because the risk is way too high in terms of the reward there, um, for when those deer are moving and when we get a chance to hunt them. So really, you know, our strategy there is, you know, you spend the morning scouting, um, and kind of staying way, you know, we'll use basically spotting scopes at that point and watching where deer are going into to confirm that we kind of have, you know, bedding locations pinned down. Um, and even like the first two nights we're there, we, a lot of times we won't even hunt. So we're just watching deer come from bedding in the evenings, the first evening or two, and then go back into beddings in the morning since we're not hunting. And then it's really a running gun style of hunt. You know, we're use that data to, you know, you do a hang and hunt your first night and as much as you're hunting, you're also scouting. So if you hit the right spot, great. It comes together. If you realize you got to make a change for the next day, you, you know, you pull your set, whether it's, you know, running either lone wolves or tethered saddles or whatever. Um, and you go back in the next afternoon. So it's really focusing on those feeding patterns. And the reason I like to do that both in Kentucky and Wisconsin is, you know, typically on a feeding pattern, you're not pushing into the timber. So it's a low impact hunt. Um, but if something does go wrong and you do bump a a deer, you know, especially if it's your target deer, um, a lot of times what you can still do is if you completely back out of there, keep the pressure down to a minimum, you're going to get another chance at that deer come late October, early November. Well, that's what I even think it's important too. A lot of people rely solely on what they see on their camera. And I think people need to, realize how important it is to actually know the landscape of where you're hunting. You know, I think people bounce uh, back and forth between either properties or, or public land and really need to put the boots on the ground when it, at the right time, especially in that February, March, you know, early springtime when it's not really going to affect the deer uh, and know, you know, if you're not leaving your camera up and know exactly how their pattern, like we are, we have to pull them. So we're kind of getting a, a small inventory of what's in the area but if you don't know where the bedding is or where they want to go to the food and you only have you know where they are they're going to break up after those bachelor groups you know in pennsylvania when the season starts in october they're already kind of separated from the groups and so it's going to be important to realize what the lay of the land looks like so don't base everything off your camera and actually when it's appropriate get in there and do some scouting find the beds you know see where the trails are where they're moving to the feeding areas as well yeah a hundred percent i mean this is this is one of the main reasons that i don't sit in a ground blind turkey hunting right (laughs) like i run and gun on you know because i like doing it but also for me that is just another opportunity to 
you know, really scour and understand these chunks of property, you know, both in the springtime, cause they look so different in the spring than they do in the fall. But also it's another reason, you know, to your point, get out there and call it shed hunting or call it taking the dog for a hike or call it whatever you want, but get out there in January and February when it looks also very different than it does in the spring and fall and just, you know, walk every inch of that ground that you can because your, your risk is so low at that point and knowing exactly, you know, confirming where bedding is, confirming where travel is, you know, confirming where food is, you know, and how all those things come together. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a lot of times more important than what your cameras are actually showing you. And let's take a quick break to thank our partners over at Cobra Archery. New ownership, new innovation, new engineering, new commitment to excellence. They have the bow hunters in mind when they are designing all their new innovative products. Be sure to check them out and all the Cobra Archery products at cobraarchery.com. And I know too, Dimitri and I have, we just talked about it just the other day. We're looking into more so uh, talking about that entry and exit strategy is where deer are going when they're getting bumped. I know there's a couple spots on public land that we actually scouted and, you know, look like they could be really good as far as, cause we saw a good amount of sign at the end of the season and uh, that type of in, in, information. But uh, like we're looking at it, we might, we see more hunter sign coming closer. I, getting off the road and all that type of stuff. And then we're like, man, let's go back just that little bit further. You see good deer sign. It's like, okay, where are they pushing? Where are they going from when they hear this, like a human or like Dimitri said, like whether it be a coyote or whatever. So we're trying to play that strategy as well. Oh yeah. I mean, on my public spots, a lot of times I'm paying more attention to everybody else's (laughs) entry and exit route, you know, than anything else in terms of like when I first start honing in on a place or when I really start learning it, because, you know, on those public chunks, you know, whether it's five guys or 50 guys, what everybody else is doing probably has the most impact on deer movement and probably has the most impact on where deer are bedding. Um, and if you can understand that, man, you are putting yourself in a position to be, you know, way more successful than everybody else. Yeah. Um, and really understand how those deer move. That's great. Now talk about too, Greg, about how you do, uh, your mobile setup. Cause I know like how you were talking about like when, like early season, whether it's in, in Kentucky or Wisconsin, like once you find the, the, that feeding pattern and everything like that, you're just going hard and going in, um, mm-hmm. talk about how that transitions throughout the whole season, whether it be from early to, you know, that late October and then like once it just starts going, you know, batshit crazy during the rut. Like talk about how you transition and change for, for being mobile. Yeah. I, part of it for me, it, it depends on the, 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 you know, the chunk I'm hunting, mm-hmm. um, you know, public, I rarely will leave, you know, a stand or sticks or, you know, even if I'm running my saddle, I won't leave anything out there. So one of the reasons is a, I don't want to cue other people in on where I am or why I'm there. Um, but then be, you know, you just don't have to worry about it. And a lot of times what I'll do, you know, for public is, um, I'm a little more aggressive on my public spots nice. just because I know if I burn one out or bump, you know, bump a target deer or whatever it might be, I can just pick them and go to the next spot. So in terms of public, I would say I'm very mobile. Um, pretty much every hunt is a hanging hunt. I mean, over the, the, all the years of, you know, chasing whitetails that I have under my belt, you know, typically I know it's kind of cliche, but I found it to be true. It's like the first sit at any place, you know, is typically your best. So 
Um, I'm definitely more aggressive. I'm definitely more of a run and gun, hang and hunt on my public spots. Um, and for me, what I'm using to do that is really, it's more dependent on like the entry and exit, how much brush whacking do I have to do? How clean can I get in? You know, what types of trees are available to get in? And that's what I kind of use to determine am I running, you know, like a real lightweight, like lone wolf style stand, or am I bringing my saddle in? Um, so that's kind of how I, how I, you know, work that on public. Um, typically I try and hunt, you know, as close as possible to betting on public. Um, for those exact reasons, I'm, I'm willing to be a little bit, take a little bit more of a chance, um, for a greater reward, knowing that the, the risk isn't so high. Cause I can always just go to a different spot. Um, in terms of my private parcels, um, most of them I've had for a, quite a while. So I know them really well. Um, and it's been, you know, the minor changes that have taken place over the last 10 years of hunting them, I have those pretty well figured out. So in there, I'm a lot less mobile. I kind of have my spots, um, picked and have those, those chunks figured out. So my process there, kind of my theory there is it's just, it's low impact. It's how low can I keep the impact on those places? So that come end of October, beginning of November, I'm in the hot seat, you know? Um, and basically what that means for me is again, understanding bedding, understanding travel corridors, typically in the early season, trying to hunt those deer in those travel corridors where I can get in and out clean. I'm not pushing into the timber very much, typically hunting edges or near food sources. Um, and then, you know, if I get a crack and have something on a summer pattern still, and the cameras are showing me that, or my scouters scouting is showing me that like, absolutely. That's, that's great. You know? Um, but if not, it's really kind of balancing, making sure that I'm in the right spot at the right time and haven't burgered anything up come, you know, late October, early November. Right. Now that you're talking about being aggressive, especially on public, can you kind of describe what you would, you're looking for when you're finding that perfect tree, whether it's, you know, terrain features, maybe you're looking for rubs, scrapes. Now, when you get in close to that bedding and, and trying to find that perfect tree, what are you kind of looking for around and, and setting up on when you're, when you're going out on the public? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So what I do, um, when I'm honing in on those, like, you know, call them buck bedding areas or bedding areas on public is, um, the first thing I do is I expand my map, um, you know, to probably show a good two mile ish, one to two mile radius around where I want to hunt. And I just start working back. And what I mean by that is I know, you know, if there's big ag in the area that that is, I call that the end of the deer, the deer travel. So I know that in the middle of the night when they're doing, you know, the majority of their feeding, that's where they're going to be. And then I kind of work backwards from there. So if I know that they're going to be there in the dark and this works for both an evening or a morning sit, right? Before that, they're going to be in some type of staging area. So if there's a secondary smaller food source closer to bedding, you know, that's a pretty easy way to identify a staging area. If there's, you know, kind of an Oak flat, um, or any like fruit trees with soft mass on it, you know, between that big ag and bedding, that's kind of that staging area. Once I figure out what that staging area might be, you know, kind of that spot that they hang out and eat a little bit, we'll call it getting a snack before they go on to their nighttime feeding patterns. I then work back and figure out, okay, I know the does are going to be bedding within a certain distance of that if possible. So I try and figure out where that doe bedding is. And then once I know where that doe bedding is, I know that, you know, 
based off where that doe bedding is, likely the bucks are going to be bedding within a certain distance of that doe bedding. So on one end of my spectrum, I have, you know, nighttime feeding on the other end of my spectrum, I have buck bedding areas. And once I've kind of figured that out on the maps, that's when I like to use say that, you know, January, February or Turkey hunting area to go in there and actually confirm is that what's actually happening and how close am I? And then really for me, what I do is uh, when I'm talking about getting aggressive, if you can kind of think about this on the spectrum with nighttime feeding or big egg on one side, buck bedding on the other, I want to figure out how I can get into the backside of that buck bedding um, and get in, you know, obviously on the right wind uh, with using the terrain to my advantage so that I can get in there if it's a morning hunt, you know, before the bucks actually come into bed or if it's an evening hunt, um, if I can get in before they actually come out of bed. Now the evening's a, a little different, you know, it's a little more tricky cause they're in there and you're trying to get close to them. Um, but what I've found is once I'm in those areas, yeah, like I'm looking for actual beds. I'm looking for scrape lines within that bedding area. I'm looking for rubs within that bedding area because typically it plays out one of two ways. Um, one, you're going to catch them actually coming to or from the bed. But two, even if you don't catch them doing that, a lot of times they're going to get up and move a little bit um, once they bed down. And when they get up and move, I've found that a lot of times they're kind of moving the outside edges of that bedding um, right where I want to set up to find their secondary bed or stretch their legs, grab a drink, you know, whatever, check a rub or a scrape. Um, so that's kind of my, my theory for getting aggressive is honing in on what that whole picture look like, whole picture looks like, excuse me, and then based off of what I see in the general area I want to be, get as close as I can um, without getting too close. And that's awesome. That's great information just because, too, I think the, what kind of could build off of that, Greg, is the one of the questions that I have going on in my that I want to ask is, do you have a particular time? So, like, meaning you hear all different types of things where people are like, I only go, especially early season, I'm only hunting in the evening. I'm not touch in the morning. I'll only go in the morning if, if it's the cold front, like what is your philosophy or what have you seen success with as far as like, do you do morning? Do you leave and come back or are you doing all days or how does that situation play? If, if at all, I like to not, I, I like to not try and have any absolutes, right? Because mm -hmm. I think a, depending on hunting pressure, um, you know, I think, time of year plays into this big time. Um, I think weather plays into this big time. Um, so I don't def, I definitely don't have any absolutes, but I would say in general, um, early in the season, um, I typically only will hunt evenings unless there is a, I'm getting pictures that tell me to do otherwise right. or B there's some type of front. So, you know, a certain, you know, pressure system coming through cold front coming through wind direction that tells me I could probably get in and out and still be clean. Um, but maybe have a better chance of catching that buck moving in that, you know, the, the morning hours without, um, putting too much pressure on. So again, not absolutes, but generally early season, I tend to only hunt evenings and keep that pressure as low as possible. Um, but for me that almost completely switches then, you know, once we get into pre-rut, um, and for me, that's, you know, late October, um, then I actually, the morning is my favorite time. Cause what I've found is that time of year, I actually have about twice to maybe three times as much total time of daylight movement in the morning as I do in the evening. So I'll hunt transition to hunting more mornings and my morning sits are typically longer 
than what my evening sits would be because those bucks are up and moving a lot longer, um, in those morning hours. Um, and then once we get into, you know, like rut activity, so whether that's late three rut or rut, um, I'm putting my butt in the stand as long as I can, as many days as I can, if I haven't punched a tag yet, <laughs> because that's just at that point, like, you know, anything can happen at any time. And I think I'm a firm believer that more time in the stand definitely equates to more success. So yeah. that time of year, it's like sit all day if I can. Yeah. I always tell the, tell the missus, you can't shoot them sitting on the ho- at home on the couch. You know? <laughs> exactly. But man, it gets to be a grind when you're a week or two into that. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. It's still, I mean, it's hard even for me, you get today, you know, four five, six, seven, ten, whatever of all day sits. And that mental grind is, it's not easy. No, dude, I even experienced it. Sorry, Dimitri, but I even experienced it a little bit like going after Turkey this year, just because Dimitri tagged out the second Saturday and he was only able to hunt on the weekends. But during the week I was getting up just because of the whole school thing. I was like, man, I'm going to go Turkey hunting finally because of not like baseball was done. So I didn't have to coach. And I was getting up every day at like 3am and just grinding out those days. And then finally it was like the one day Dimitri's like, you out. I'm like, no, I had to sleep in today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I, th- I think it's funny, especially with the evening hunts is my wife will always be like, when, when will you be home? It's like, how many years have we been together? And you know, I'm hunting. <laughs> it's not going to be till after dark. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Greg too, I think kind of hearing you talk today, I, m- I heard you mentioned a couple times and it's something where we have found success. Uh, I would say within the last couple of years is talking about doe bedding. Uh, I know for me that that seemed to be the one thing that changed for me hunting back at home was, you know, I, I looked at the map and after talking to my dad that had, that knows that side of the mountain basically better than like the back of his hand, you know, I was like, I didn't understand why we never got a little bit that de- more down the ridge basically, or down the mountain per se. And I know over the last couple of years, those bucks were a lot of sign when you would walk on this North road. I mean, as you're walking up, you would see a buck rub, a buck rub, and it's just right there on the road, basically. And just within like 20 yards, if you were on either side of, of the wood wooded area, you would see bedding. Or if you would walk down during scouting trips, you would see does and, and piles of does just going off. And that's what kind of the light bulb went off for me. It's like, dude, I got to get a little bit further down. I got to be near where these, these doe beddings uh, are at. And then that's where I set up. I mean, I set up about 35, 40 yards within, uh, off from that, that North road. And it just seemed to me like this past year after checking the camera, we had like, I six to eight different bucks that were, if they survived, could be really nice deer this year. Uh, but they're all moving right where those doe bedding is at. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, I think early on, before I truly understood this, you know, it seems kind of confusing. So, well, how do you know it's doe bedding? How do you know it's buck bedding? And like, there is definitely some overlap there. And, you know, it's not like you can necessarily just walk in and find a bed and tell what, you know, it is, but the way I'm, you know, and I say doe bedding, we talk about buck bedding, you know, the way I'm kind of determining that is I know that does are going to, you know, typically bed closer to the food. And I know that bucks are going to bed within a certain distance of, you know, where the majority, you know, the highest density of doe bedding is. So, I'm really classifying those things based off of when I'm finding bedding areas, how close is it to what I know is like a staging area or how close is it to what I know is a primary food source and kind of working back from there. But yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, if you can figure out where 
the highest density of those does are spending their time, the majority of their time, which is a bedding area, right? Like when you get to, you know, pre-rut and rut, like that's where the, when those bucks are cruising, that's where they're cruising, you know, to look for them. And if they're not in the food, they're at their bedding areas. And if bucks are looking for, you know, those first does to come into heat, that's one of my favorite times of year to be in the woods is like when those, when the mature bucks are finally starting to cruise, I've had some of my best hunts near doe bedding areas as they're checking them out for those hot does. Yeah. What, what would you say, Greg, would be like a time or a moment that you felt like it clicked for you as far as like getting after that mature buck, like finding, like finding real, finally realizing that like, okay, if I do this like year after year, I have a chance to either see a mature buck or, or be in to get a shot opportunity on one. That's a good question. I think, I don't know if there is a, it wasn't like a light switch for me. Right. right? Um, but I think when it really started to kind of click was, um, when I went away to college, um, and luckily I, I went to college in the Western portion of Wisconsin, um, which is the land of the giants in terms of whitetail deer in Wisconsin. Um, but when I went away to college and I didn't have access to the places that I grew up hunting, um, I was really forced to, you know, either start knocking on doors and hunting properties that I'd never laid foot on before, um, or spend a lot more time. I spent most of my time hunting public parcels and that forced me to truly learn like how deer act, how they move, um, you know, what they do, why they do it. And I learned more, you know, in that four to six years of doing it on my own than I had previously. And that's growing up in a hunting family that was, you know, fanatics about whitetails, but it's just one of those, you know, I related to, if you're a passenger in a vehicle and you go somewhere, the chances of you being able to get yourself back to that place are less than if you're the one driving. Right. And when I finally went away to college and had to do it on my own, I was finally driving. And as I learned more, just my drive and my passion for exactly that, like finding bigger, mature deer, understanding them. Um, that's when it kind of started to click. And I think it just, you know, it's built on that ever since. Sweet. Now, Greg, talk a little bit about, hunting does now a lot of people have different philosophy some people you know i know i've talked to people where they like to hunt does early on in the season maybe before the rut kicks off and try to fill their tag some people like to hold off to the late season to hunt does do you have some people don't even like to hunt does in general um depending on whether it's public or private land how they're trying to manage their herd but what is your thought process on doe hunting I'm going to give you the, the short answer there. Yes. <laughs> um, I am a huge proponent of it for a number of reasons. One, um, you know, I think especially when you have the ability to control doe numbers, you can turn the tides in your favor in terms of buck activity during the rut. So if for no other reason, um, I think you, it's going to help you, um, you know, if you have a doe to buck ratio, that's, you know, maybe not in line. Um, it's only ever going to help you in terms of, um, what you're going to see for rut activity. Um, two, I, (laughs) I don't like to purchase meat from a grocery (laughs) store or a butcher or anything. So that's typically how I fill my freezer every year. Um, so that's another big pro for me. Um, and then, you know, thirdly, I think the, you know, the practice that you get from hunting does is so crucial. Like I don't want, 
it to be November 2nd and my target buck I've been chasing all year is finally coming in front of me and I haven't drawn my bow back on a deer yet, you know? So to have that, the ability to practice of, you know, even to confirm your shooting lanes, right? Like you think you have a shooting lane or whatever. And like, sometimes it's not as great as you think. And you learn those things, you know, going through the process of, you know, watching the deer come in, drawing when you think you should, you know, stopping it if you need to X, Y, and Z executing the shot. And if, if I've done that six times on does before the beginning of November, when that target buck is finally in front of me, I'm kind of going into autopilot. If it's the first time I've done it all year, you know, I, I would like to think that it still goes off without a hitch, but I just feel like my chances are less. So, you know, that's another reason I really like to hunt does. Um, so for early season does, that's kind of my pitch there. Um, if I haven't filled my freezer yet, absolutely. Like late season, I'm out there trying to fill doe tags for sure. Um, you know, in that middle of October to middle of November end of November, if I still have a buck tag in my pocket, I'm probably not shooting any does, um, just because all it takes is one hot doe cruising through and you know, that target bucks probably, or could be behind her. And I hate to disrupt that. So that's kind of my theory on it. Not saying it's right or wrong. That's just kind of what I do. Well, dude, even right now with COVID happening, I know a lot of people are getting into hunting just because of, because of trying to put some meat in the, in the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause Dimitri and I, Dimitri, cause right before you got on, Greg, we, we talked and we said, Hey, did you get your bonus tag? And I said, yes, yeah. so we were like, good. Dimitri, talk about the new law that PA has introduced this year, just to kind of fill Greg in and see if he has any talking points on that. So basically they're trying to come up with a CWD plan of how to manage the, the deer herd in Pennsylvania. So what they are doing this year is they, they've raised the number of doe license um, depending on the uh, area and what, you know, what the CWD positive, positive tests were in the previous years. So what they are trying to do is kind of lower the dirt deer herd in certain areas and, and trying to increase, have the, the hunters harvest the deer themselves rather than taking matters into their own hands. So, I mean, it's a, it's a positive thing where you can, you know, get an extra tag. It's a little easier this year, but in the negative, you know, you don't want all the, the population to go way down where, where it doesn't make it fun for people to hunt. Well, and the, to even piggyback off that, they actually too changed the first day of of rifle season. Uh, you can now shoot a doe the same day. So, whereas in years past you had that week of just you know buck only, and then that that what is it, the second Saturday technically you could shoot you know a buck or a doe if that's what you still have left in your pocket. So now like that opening day of rifle season, it just seems like it's just going to be a madhouse. Yeah. So Wisconsin obviously you know is in the same we've had CWD around for a while. Um, and it's, it's interesting how different the state lays out, you know, like the, the Southern to central portion of the state, um, typically has a lot more ag. Um, so the deer densities are a lot higher. Um, you know, you, you, you could let anybody that wanted to shoot as many does as they want, and it's really not going to impact the overall hunting. Um, there's just the deer densities are insanely high. Um, but you get up into the Northern portion of the state and it's big hardwoods, very little ag, you know, it's hard living for those deer up there and it's a very different situation. So, uh, you know, what you guys are describing, I'm kind of getting both worlds where, you know, most of the time that I spend archery hunting is in the Southern or middle section of the state. 
Um, so I'm harvesting a lot of does in my archery equipment. You know, basically you can go buy as many tag doe tags as you want to fill your freezer. Um, but when we go up, up North for rifle season, you know, there has, and it switches every year, but there's been years where there are no doe tags, right. And it's only buck tags. Um, and that fluctuates depending on kind of a, what's going on with CWD and B, you know, what the populations are up there. Um, but yeah, we've had a very similar situation, um, with a trying to control numbers and then B trying to control CWD. And for the last break of the day, let's thank our partners over at Stoker Eye Stabilizers and just want to just say how much I love running the M1 series uh, uh, stabilizer. I have the the SS1, it's the 14 and a half. It balances the Black Series 3 out perfectly with the tight spot quiver on. Another uh, example of great people behind the product. So uh, between Sean and Kyle, so thank you so much. And uh, make sure you check out stokerize.com and get yourself one of the best stabilizers to put on your bow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I, it's just, uh, the, you know, obviously the world that we're living in right now. And I know the uh, we had a buddy on Torn from the National Deer Alliance on a couple of weeks ago, and he, he was talking about the, what they're doing to, to kind of help combat everything and just inform people. So the good news is that, like Dimitri said, at least they're putting it in a hunter's situation, a, a chance to go and instead of trying something else. But, um, you know, but, you know, talk to Greg, I want you to, to touch upon this because you talked about, you know, shooting and, and all that type of stuff. Because I like that you go from the saddle, but also when a situation arises, you, you still hunt from a tree stand. Does anything change for you as, fo- as far as like your, I don't want to say technique, but like how you're preparing for that specific shot from either or? Or then, uh, then even to piggyback off that, talk about like how you do prepare for hunting season with your shooting. Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me is, is reps and I shoot my bow all year long, um, uh, just cause I enjoy doing it. But obviously like, you know, these summer months, June, July, August, I'm really ramping it up because I want, I want it to be autopilot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the winter months I'm trying to shoot, Oh, well, you know, used to be able to go shoot 3d leagues and things like that just to keep it fun. Um, but in terms of my shooting prep for me, it's kind of an all year thing. It's just, I'm trying to just consistently keep this muscle memory so that when I'm executing a shot, it's, you know, I'm almost not even thinking about it. Right. Um, obviously it's like perfect practice makes perfect shot. It's not just getting in the reps. You have to be doing the right things while you're practicing, but that's kind of my take on like off season shooting. Um, but how that, you know, moves into answer your question about saddles versus stands, you know, one of the big things that I'll start doing more, you know, as I get closer to the season is utilizing both of those things for practice. Um, you know, one of the great things about the saddle and the way that it holds you in the tree is it almost forces you into good form because you're pivoting at your hips, right? You're not, you can't, you almost just can't lean over, right? Like with your back and shoulders. So it kind of forces you into good shooting form, you know, and on the offside, on your offside, it's a little bit different. You got to, do some maneuvering with your feet and body alignment. But that is one of the great things about the saddle is, you know, you need to get comfortable shooting out of it, but shooting at those angles, it almost helps you practice good form um, and helps with shot execution. So um, I'm definitely a proponent of I'll throw that thing up in the backyard or, you know, wherever it might be and, and shoot out of it as the season gets closer. Um, You know, and then out of a stand, I think it's critical to practice too, because, you know, for me, it's, I love, yeah, in a perfect world, I'm standing up, 
you know, I'm able to align my body to where that deer is. Um, and sometimes that happens, but sometimes you get caught off guard and you got to shoot from a sitting position, right. Or you got to shoot without your body fully turned the way you would like it to. So practicing those things and practicing being able to make those shots and still, you know, bending at the waist instead of arching your shoulders over, um, practicing at the different angles. Um, I think it's, it's probably, I don't think enough people do it and right. it's probably underrated, you know, going into the season. So like right now is when I'm really ramping that stuff off, up, you know, yeah. making sure that part of my reps every single day and every single week include shooting with those tools, saddle stands, et cetera. No, that's extremely important just because I know years ago uh, when I had an opportunity, um, I missed the buck and it was, as I went through everything, it just happened so fast, obviously. And it's just like, like you said, it's that first time was the first time I drew back and it was actually a middle of October. And after the whole process happened, I'm like, he was close and I shot like right under him. And my, as I was going through everything, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I didn't bend at the waist. You know what I mean? It was just cause yeah. it happened so yeah. fast and it, you know, that throws it off from that high of an angle. Uh, so that was the one thing that like changed like that immediately was like, okay, let's practice more. So like I'll sh start shooting. Obviously, like you said, we ramp it up, we shoot more, but then as like, now, like obviously the, with our trip thrown a loop here, but like when I return back from our trip from Utah, I'll get up in the tree and practice shooting from a saddle as much as I can almost every single time, whether it even be, Hey, get X amount of shots from the ground, but then go up and get, take another half and finish that round of practice from the saddle or from the tree stand. Uh, just because again, it's, it's that muscle memory, like you talk about, but then also feeling more comfortable from those shooting positions. And like you said, too, trying to practice all angles, which has been really helpful as far as like the saddle is concerned. Yeah. Well, and testing your equipment too, right? Yeah. Like I think a lot of people, you know, you, you buy a range finder and it says that as angle compensation. So it's like, okay, I can get up in my stand, use my range finder. It's going to tell me what distance to shoot. You know, what a lot of people don't understand is depending on, the quality of that range finder, the accuracy of that range finder with angle compensation, it's not all equal. Yeah. You know, some of those range finders are only accurate on their angle compensation up to 20 degrees, you know, well, a steep tree stand shot, <laughs> you know, you're way over that. So, you know, even throwing a target out there using the range finder that you're going to use in the field at different distances and different angles and confirming that it's working with your pins, you know, having confidence in your equipment, going into the season, you know, as, as, as much of important for like your mental sanity, yeah. also just, you know, to this exact situation where maybe you did shoot out of a stand and maybe you're comfortable with it, but maybe you never actually tested your rangefinder to make sure that, you know, it was working with your pin alignment and things like that. I think, you know, that's a big part of, um, that preseason reps is kind of confirming all those things. And, you know, I think another thing that's under, appreciated. And I used to not do a great job of this. I would spend all year, all off season shooting and get my reps in. And then as soon as hunting season rolls around, it becomes harder, right? Because yeah. all the free time you have, you just want to jump in the truck. <laughs> you just want to get to the stand. You just want to hunt. Well, it's like, okay, for a lot of us, if that archery season starts in September and you're archery hunting through, you know, up till rifle season in late November, you're talking three full months you know, of time. And I've really forced myself to keep a target in the truck. So even if it's as little as right before I get out the stand, you know, taking five, 10 shots, you know, keep one set up in the backyard. So it's super easy, you know, before dinner, right after breakfast in the morning, get shots is 
maintaining those reps and keeping that practice during the season as well, I think is probably just as important as doing it, you know, before season. Yeah, 100%. Greg, talk about too, like what changes to your strategy occurs like when you do go out of state? Like, does it like, uh, you know, like how you're talking about going, finding things on, on the e-scouting using Onyx, you know, for us, the one thing that I want to do this year is obviously get to Ohio. So I'm looking at certain things on, on the map. Um, and I plan on like how Dimitri was saying, when we go to here on public land, we're going to go a lot, be a lot more aggressive than we have been in the past years. And that's something where my philosophy, I want to kind of bring that to when I go out of state, is that kind of what your philosophy is as well? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, when you're going on a state that let's say it's a long hunt and you're going to be gone for seven days, you know, or basically the way I look at it as I try and think about maximizing that time. So let's just use this seven day hunt as an example. Like I'm probably not going to charge in on day one, right into where I think, you know, is a buck batting area. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to use day one, two, and maybe three to confirm that. Like I want to put myself in the mix. I don't want to take myself out of the, an opportunity to, you know, kill a good buck on day one. Um, but what I try and do is I try and use about half my trip um, as like confirmation that my e-scouting is actually correct because we've all been there where, you know, you pick out what you think is the best spot in any whitetail woods you've ever been in on the maps. And, you know, there's funnels there and looks like you've identified bedding, you understand food and you get there and it's like, there's no deer sign here. Right. So <clears throat> it's trying to balance like conf- confirmation of my scouting and then also being aggressive. So if day one, two, and three kind of confirms that my scouting was correct, it's like, yeah, days four through seven, like I'm going to get in there cause I got three days left or four days left to get this done. Um, and then I'm out of here for the rest of the year. So again, it's that risk reward. Um, if it's a three day hunt, you know, maybe I'm spending one, one day confirming that and then the other two really charging at it. But Um, yeah, just like you guys, like I'm more aggressive. I try and be aggressive in a calculated way. Um, so balancing like the scouting and observation sits with the actual, you know, aggressive sits, um, as much as I can. That's typically my strategy. Awesome, man. Well, dude, tell me, we'll wrap it up. Well, tell me, I know when the last time I talked to Kevin Harlander, he was just going berserk as far as what he has for his 2020 hunting season. What what do you got going on? You talked about Kentucky and obviously Wisconsin. So what else is in store, brother? Yeah, it's, this is, um, it's kind of interesting. Like this is going to be the first year in and probably six years, seven years, um, that I'm not going to do anything out West. Like I am, I am, like I would give up Western hunting any day of the week to sit in a tree stand, <laughs> which people call me crazy. And like, I get made fun of at the office all the time, but um, typically I like to find a balance of, you know, spending time in a tree stand and chasing Western critters, which I'm sure I'm going to miss big time this year, but um, it's, it's an action packed whitetail fall for me. So I'll head to Kentucky beginning of September, um, have about a week there to get that done. Um, I'll get back just in time um, to get over to the Western portion of the state for Wisconsin opener. Um, so if we have a plan in place there, I'll hit that hard for about a week or so. Um, and then in October, early October, um, I'm going to be doing another hunt in one on one of my Western properties early October. Um, and then middle of October, um, I got a hunt lined up in, um, Minnesota, um, that I'm going to be doing 
And then basically from there, I had to Kansas for the first week of November, try and catch the rut there, um, back to Wisconsin for basically the rest of November if I haven't tagged out yet. Um, and then that pretty much brings me into December. So, um, sprinkle in, you know, hunts around this area, uh, throughout there, but it's going to be fast and furious. That sounds awesome, man. Well, if you, yeah. uh, if you get success early on and you're looking to come out East, man, hit me and Taylor up and I'm sure we could work something out from, from my house to his house. It's not that far of a drive. So we could, we could definitely do some damage in Virginia and PA as well. Yeah, we need to make that happen. I hopefully I can uh, punch a tag on one of these early and free up a little bit of time. I would love to love to come out there and chase some PA whitetails with you guys. Yeah, man, well, dude, I'll tell you what. This is the one thing where I have seen more and and heard from you know just good friends and everything like that. Just awesome growth from our whitetails this past year because number I think there's two reasons. One, our winter was very very mild. Uh, so I think a lot of deer survive, but then you throw in and, and this is kind of, when you think about it, 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 to me, it makes sense when COVID hit and there was no one on the road, a lot of deer did not get killed from, from all that travel. And, uh, so we, like, I talked to a bunch of people were like, we're like, Dimitri, you could even chime in. Like we see like does with triplets and, and twins just all over the place. It's just been like awesome. So man, our, our, our deer population is really, really good right now. And I just know a lot of, a lot of bucks, I think, you know, survived this, this really mild winter. And I think, uh, this upcoming season because of that, the the food has been there. So I think nutrition has been good for them. And I think we have a, a good opportunity in, in PA this year. That's exciting, man. It's fun. To, it's fun to be as close as we are now where you can kind of, I know you guys are heading out to Utah here next week and it's fun to be in that position where, you know, it's the light at the end of the tunnel is getting a little bigger. Yeah. Right. And it's, you can actually, uh, start getting your, your final gear list organized and your stuff in place to, you know, before we know we'll be throwing the bows in the trucks and, and heading out. So it's, it's a fun time of year. Um, to get fired up for everything that's to come. Uh, absolutely. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on everybody that are, that's listening. Make sure to go check out firstlight.com. Check out first light hunting on their Instagram page. Uh, Greg, you, you want to throw up your Instagram as well? I stayed pretty low key yeah. <laughs> on, on Instagram, but yeah, I mean, you can definitely search me out. It's just at Greg Farrell. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say anything, anything first rate, first light related, um, you know, on that front, you know, search us up on the first light page, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, um, any questions, you know, that's one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is when you call first light, if you have a question, you're going to get connected with somebody that a does the same type of hunting you do. Um, and B it's going to be a real person. So, um, if they can't answer your question, they're going to direct you to somebody who can. So don't ever hesitate to call. Um, we love to chat hunting and we love to hear your hunting stories and help you out any way we can. So give us a, give us a ring if ever needed. Yeah, 100%. And I, I could attest to what Greg just said, because that was uh, setting Dimitri and I up with, with the proper sizing and all that type of stuff. And I'm telling you people, if you have yet to get your solitude kit, grab that sucker now, because <laughs> man, I, I, uh, I, I can't speak more highly about that, that piece of gear. And, and uh, the master, one of the masterminds behind that is who, who just spoke on this awesome podcast. So uh, man, thank you again, Greg, for, for taking that time out and people go check out first light uh, hunting on their Instagram page and what they're all about. And until next time, antler up. And that's a wrap for another episode of the antler up podcast. Thanks again to Greg for coming on. 
Hope you all enjoyed it as well. And if so, please make sure you go write a five-star review that helps us out, uh, can, helps us continue to grow. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out our Instagram coming up this week as we're going to have some giveaways with Onyx. And until next time, Antler up.